Welcome to Observations, podcast from Medical Observer. My name is Dr Annette Catalaris. Thanks for joining me. For my first guest this year, I'm honoured to welcome Professor Ian Olver. He's a medical oncologist, cancer researcher and bioethicist, and he's familiar to us all in his role as the Chief Executive Officer of Cancer Council Australia. Ian, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Annette. You took over as CEO of the Cancer Council in 2006, and everybody knows that you've worked tirelessly ever since. But cancer still accounts for the deaths of about one in three Australians, so you've certainly had your work cut out. Tell me, what have been your major wins and challenges over the last seven years? We've been emphasising how lifestyle changes can impact on, on cancer. A third of cancer deaths could be prevented by stopping smoking, by sun protection and by uh, diet and exercise preventing obesity and, and modulation of, of alcohol. So uh, we're pleased that uh, in tobacco control we've seen plain packaging and we've seen uh, uh, price increases uh, which are the most sensitive way currently of, of encouraging people to quit. I'm particularly pleased that the government has announced a bowel screening program that will save between 20 and 30 lives per week in Australia when it's fully implemented. And of course, it's been exciting to see the introduction of the human papillomavirus vaccine for cancer of the cervix. Fabulous. And that bowel cancer screening change came about as your lobby in, in the last election campaign? Oh, it was a long time before that, actually, because the uh, the program had been initiated by actually the previous Liberal government, but they'd only started it with two age groups uh, receiving kits, uh, 55 and 65, yes, yes. and then a, a further age group, 50, was added. Yeah. Um, the whole program's meant to be every two years from the age of 50. So uh, it's been a progressive uh, change, but what we wanted was somebody to take responsibility for the whole program and 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 put a time on it in the last election campaign the current government said look we'll have this all in place by 2020 and about time too the only thing about that is that the recent reports suggest that the uptake of even those uh, discrete age groups that were being targeted has dropped considerably. I think one of the problems when you've got a very sporadic uh, campaign like that is you can't actually get a coherent message across either to the general public or to general practitioners uh, that this should be in that age group something that they'd like to talk to uh, to patients about. So it's not until you, you have the kits appearing regularly that you'll be able to uh, uh, improve that uptake by, by education. As an outsider looking in, I would have to say to you, Ian, that one of your greatest achievements is um, developing wiki guidelines. And I think in the long run, that's going to have a massive impact on patient healthcare worldwide. Can you tell us about how you came up with this solution and exactly what they are and the advantages that they afford? For us, it's been exciting because it's one of our more innovative programs, but uh, we've been responsible for treatment policy guidelines at Cancer Council for a couple of decades. Uh, they've always been produced as booklets and we were faced with two problems. One is uh, they were out of date before the ink dried. 
And, and the second is the dissemination of them so that they had a chance to impact on practice. And when we thought about it, as the technology became available, if we used the wiki technology, which is a bit like Wikipedia, except that we have a closed system where, where not everyone can, can add to it, but they can all comment on it, we thought if we used that platform and modified it for guidelines, we'd certainly be able to update pieces of the guideline without um, it relying on, on the whole thing being produced as yet another booklet, and we'd be able to disseminate widely uh, via the web. So uh, that, that was the impetus for them, and um, as we've uh, been producing guidelines on the wiki, we've actually been able to test that the uptake and indeed the spread of the guidelines is great. That's fantastic news. I've had considerable experience working with guideline authors and I know the ex the frustrations they uh, experience. Tell me, has the NHNMRC endorsed this process and will it replace their rather laborious existing process to get guidelines developed? Well, what we're trying to do is actually um, copy the, the best of the quality assurance of the NHNMRC process uh, into the process of, of the guidelines. So we do want to go out to wide public public consultation, which of course can be done continuously on the wiki because the public or other specialists can comment at any time. But at this stage, because of the regulations that govern information that's endorsed by the NHMRC, we haven't quite got a mechanism for endorsing anything more than the first time we put a guideline up. Mm -hmm. When we want to change a bit of it, we still haven't figured out how to do that within the NHMRC regulations. Well, I guess they have to endorse the process. Well, without going, yes, that's right, without going back and doing almost the whole thing again, which is what currently has to happen, we'd like to see that they endorse a process where we've actually tried to keep uh, all the quality assurance measures, including on a wiki, there, there's a natural audit trail. You actually can't sort of get rid of um, previous copies of the guidelines, so it's very easy to track the changes. It's very easy to, to document which papers have been included, which haven't, and, and why that's the case. I mean, the transparency of that process just put its streaks above existing processes and sort of eliminate conflicts of interest and bias because you've got uh, the whole population commenting and watching. Well, that's right. And that's one of our safeguards, of course, that um, if anyone felt that, that one of the writing team or, or groups of people were uh, misinterpreting the data, we'd hope that one of the checks and balances on that would not just be the, the overall group that wrote the guidelines, but anyone from out there uh, that, could, that wanted to comment on the wiki. And I have to say, uh, I mean, we've been amazed at how many international uh, hits we have on our wiki site. Now, that's great news. I mean, I guess some of the other advantages are really going to be practice and, and research changing. You know, for example, you've set it up so that clinical trial registries can link to, um, you know, certain parts of the guidelines. Yeah, look, what we want to do there is is uh, have a place where people can go. Let's say a researcher goes in to find out what the current practice is, what the evidence is for the current practice. If they link to a trials registry, they can always... Uh, find out exactly uh, what trials are going on and then they can identify the gaps that need further research. So we think that would be very useful. We can also link to other um, 
resources like Evacue, which if, if we say that, you know, chemotherapy is important for stage four lung cancer, for example, Evacue tell you exactly what regimens and exactly how to give them, which is a, an order of detail that our guidelines don't do. So by linking, we're able to get uh, a coherent uh, basis for, for a whole lot of information that, that will be useful to clinicians. An incredibly effective way of standardising clinical practice. Well, it is. And the other uh, innovation that we're working on now is to link the guidelines with education modules. And we're using a technique called QStream out of Harvard where uh, the uh, points we want to make in the guidelines are uh, are converted into clinical cases with short answer questions so that uh, busy clinicians can do it in 10 minutes. But over several weeks, they get fed back the, the answers that were not accurate until finally it's been shown that they assimilate the information. And if that's assimilated, then it's most likely it'll be used in clinical practice. So this is using the pedagogy that by spacing the teaching and by repeated testing, you uh, integrate the message. And I know there's good data showing that that strategy's worked with PSA testing. Ian, can you also see patients using this in terms of the links to clinical trial registry so they would have some indication of where they should um, be looking to get onto a clinical trial if the question is relevant to their care? I do see patients using the, the wiki, but I see it in a slightly different way in that um, some patients may just want the bottom line. They may want to look up their disease, their stage of disease and find out what's recommended and ignore everything else that's, that's on the wiki. And, and that could be quite uh, useful to them. If they want more information, they can keep drilling down into the wiki. But one of the other things about a wiki, of course, with a with a keystroke, you can reconstruct the data. You can have a table that just gives you the top line recommendations without all the rest. So we're hoping that this is a consumer resource where we don't have to write a separate one because uh, people can take or leave whatever they want to. They can go into great detail or they can just access the, the bottom line. Yes, those features make it truly unique. And you've also incorporated practice points, which I really like because it's so pragmatic. Are you also sort of trying to take on things like BMJ best practice and up to date? We're not, we see ourselves as a different type of, of resource than that. Uh, we, we don't have the financial backing and the huge uh, team of people that, that some of the other uh, commercial um, guidelines do. But, of course, these guidelines have been modified to, to take into account Australian practice and Australian conditions, and I think that um, uh, that's why they'll be particularly useful in this country but, but as I said we're seeing enormous uptake uh, uh, from the international community as well. Yeah I think uh, you've put Australia in the forefront of guideline development here and I, I congratulate you. I'd like to talk specifically now about um, some of the more prevalent cancers and screening which is always a difficult topic especially for family practitioners. In the first instance, there's been a lot of controversy last year about the recommendations for lung cancer screening with low-dose CT in high-risk patients. Would you like to comment on what you think is an appropriate policy and why? 
Well, I, I think that uh, what we're seeing is that uh, in addition to the three established population screening programs of bowel, cervix and breast, uh, we're now seeing um, whether that success can be replicated in other cancers. However, part of a screening uh, of a whole population is to be able to do it very cost-effectively. Um, so you've got to have a relatively cheap screening test that can be rolled out to a whole population. So what's happening in lung is it's recognised that, that, that there's no test that you could do for a whole population. So they're, they're looking at uh, patients most likely to get lung cancer, and that is the heavy smokers. And they're saying, what about if we did CT scans on the heavy smokers and they're actually finding that they can there's a small improvement in, in survival if you can identify them early the big problem though is if, if from a population point of view you wanted to make an impact on the deaths from lung cancer I mean the greatest impact you can still make is to stop the population smoking so the question at the moment is where should a government spend its money should it spend its money uh, beefing up the uh, the anti-smoking campaigns or, or should it take this niche group and spend quite a reasonable amount of money uh, on doing CT scans. The problem that's also become apparent is there's a lot of um, false positives because the CT scan will pick up little nodules and, and it won't be clear whether they're cancer or not. So then you go on to a series of biopsies. So I think we probably need a more accurate tests before we start talking about population screening in, in lung cancer. So this always raises the clinician's dilemma, you know, do they look after the health of the population or do they look after the health of the person in front of them? If you had that high-risk person in front of you, would you order a low-dose CT? I, um, I think the issue really is that, um, that, that, that a population decision um, can't be translated into each individual. I absolutely agree that every practitioner has to look at each individual. So, for example, if an individual had a whole lot of comorbid illnesses, the answer would be you probably wouldn't want to screen them for lung cancer if you thought uh, they were going to die of something else essentially, if you had an extremely fit person whose only risk factor was heavy smoking, you may be more inclined to, but that's an individual clinical decision and that's not the sort of decision that public health people have to make when they're looking across a whole population. So I think there are different uh, type of recommendations. Um, I guess I completely um, support and acknowledge our need to put in place public health measures, but just tell us what is on the horizon medically to change outcomes in cancer treatment? Well, I think the biggest changes are getting the public health messages across, but I think the most exciting area in, in cancer control these days in treatment is the fact that we're now looking at therapies that target the particular changes that cause cancer that aren't found on the normal body cells, so you can get a more effective treatment with less side effects potentially. And uh, the fact that we are sequencing uh, all the cancers now in a worldwide project to find out the patterns of, of mutations that occur in the genes means we'll be able to 
be more accurate in predicting the, the what tumour we're dealing with, what its prognosis is, what treatments are available for the particular targets it's displaying. And I think that's a whole new way of thinking about and treating cancer. I guess when you've been around a while, you sort of um, become a little bit wary of promises made by bench researchers. You know, in the next 10 years, we will have a cure for this and a cure for that. I guess the first big ray of hope recently has been the changes in medications for melanoma. Uh, But even those drugs that have been effective in melanoma really only increase lifespan for about, you know, up to about 18 months. And this is often in young people. What exactly can we hope for? I spent uh, most of my clinical career doing negative phase twos in, in melanoma. And just as I finished that phase of my career, two new drugs came along or two new classes of drugs that actually for the first time changed the survival. So we're only at the beginning of what can be achieved. I think the difficulty is that the early successes in targeted therapy, trastuzumab for breast cancer and and imatinib for for chest tumours and chronic myeloid leukaemia, were fairly lucky in both of those targeted therapies actually targeted the mutation that was responsible for the growth of the tumour. The difficulty we have with diseases like melanoma is we may have to target several um, genetic changes in melanoma before we can convert improved survival into the possibility of cure. But we now, it is clear to me, looking in the right place. I guess what's very topical at the moment is alcohol-fueled violence, but alcohol is also a, uh, a common cause of cancer. Um, Tell me more about what you think can be done to regulate alcohol and especially with regard to its implications in cancer. I think the first thing to say is that of all the problems that alcohol causes, the social problems, liver disease and so on, cancer is not on most people's radar. And that's because uh, several years ago it caused relatively rare cancers like liver cancer and and head and neck cancer. But now that it's known to have um, an impact on the development of common cancers like breast and bowel, it becomes one of those modifiable risk factors uh, that certainly if you've got other risk factors like family history, you might want to know that you can decrease your risk by decreasing your alcohol consumption. So we see our role in the alcohol question at the moment, making that information public so people can make their decisions about their alcohol consumption. I suspect, however, that the major changes in alcohol legislation are going to be driven by other factors than cancer. I don't think people realise just how much alcohol does contribute to bowel and breast cancer. Would you like to tell us those numbers? Look, in um, in breast cancer, which is perhaps the, the, the most impressive, I mean, some studies have put it up near 20%, but I think uh, conservatively uh, about 15% of breast cancers are uh, could be attributed to alcohol as a causative factor. So that makes it a, a very powerful, modifiable risk factor. So what level of consumption is required to, you know, to encounter that risk level? 
Well, the risk uh, of cancer from alcohol actually starts from zero and just goes up with the amount of alcohol consumed. But at low-level consumption, like a couple of standard drinks a day, you're at fairly low risk. But the more you take and, and it accumulates over time, the greater your risk becomes. Thanks very much for joining me today and congratulations on giving us gold standard clinical guidelines. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for joining me, Annette Catalaris. You've been listening to Observations, podcast from Medical Observer. Hope you can join me again. I'll let Dr. Siebel, MD, take us out with his innovative bowel cancer screening campaign. Colon cancer is silent, but it's killer number two. Silently growing deep inside of you But if you catch it early You'll be cancer free That's why when you're 50 Get a colonoscopy You ready? You need a light at the end of your tunnel Searching for a bomb in the road In order to see with more clarity First you got to lighten your load